Welcome to the Leadership Window podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 60, episode 60 of the Leadership Window podcast. Glad to be along with you. Great guest today. Uh, first of all, I can't believe it's mid-February. Good Lord. I'm just, I just want to laugh at how fast things go these days. It's crazy. Uh, Nancy Murphy is our guest today, and we had a conversation, actually, I don't know, it's been a month or so ago to talk about this podcast episode. And I almost forgot we weren't recording at that time. Like we were having such a great conversation and I'm hoping that stuff all comes back up again. And um, I know that it will. One of the things I love about Nancy, she's the, by the way, she's the founder and the president of CSR Communications and uh, the creator of the Intrapreneurs Influence Lab. We'll talk a little bit about entrepreneurship here in a little bit. That might be a term that's not uh, fully familiar with some of you, but what I love about Nancy is she's one of these people that we don't we don't have to have like too structured of a thing going on. We can we can just have a conversation, which are those make for my favorite episodes. Um, so I'm not going to give you a whole lot of bio of Nancy because there's a lot here. But let me just say our this applies so much to many of our listeners because Nancy has worked in not only corporate America, but in philanthropy and in nonprofits and foundations. She's worked with everyone from, you know, UPS and Johnson Controls to the Annie Casey Foundation and the Kellogg Foundation and, and other nonprofit organizations. Those are two foundations um, that many of you are quite familiar with. So uh, Nancy mentors and advises executives on on change. And uh, what I love about it, I think, I think, I might describe Nancy on the very short uh, time frame that I've known her in the very uh, limited scope is that she's one who just will simply challenge the status quo. She'll just challenge the status quo. And um, in, in her bio, there's a note that says that she, from challenging stereotypes of girls in her Catholic school more than 40 years ago, and that, and dot, 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 I'm not going to finish that. I'm going to let her tell that story, but that just sounds like the kind of person that says, well, wait a minute, hold on, hold on. Why does it have to be this way? Why, why that? Why, why, why not? Let's, can we think about this differently? So I love that. And Nancy, I'm going to let you say the rest. I'm going to let you share with our audience the really important stuff that I missed to kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and all that stuff. But first of all, welcome to the show. I've been looking forward to this. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Patrick. I've been looking forward to it as well. So I guess a little context for that Catholic school experience. <laughs> yeah, I, I threw you right into that one. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm good with that. Let's dive right in. So I'm a Midwestern girl at heart. I grew up in Ohio and made my way to Washington, D.C. via Minnesota. So I'm definitely a Midwesterner at heart. Oh, and Vikings? Is that, is that <laughs> well, like, oh, I don't, well, on. I got to cheer for the Bengals now. I got to cheer for the Bengals now because, you know, they're well, having a season me too. and I'm from Ohio. So, well, yeah, I, sure. because, because Joe Burrow is, you know, and by the way, this is airing after the Super Bowl, So no, you know, we, so we don't know, no spoiler so we, here. <laughs> no, we don't know, but um, oh, yeah, you and I are both going for the Bengals in this case. And hopefully by the time we're listening to this episode, we're celebrating, but anyway, yes, I love it. 
I love it. So I spent 16 years in Catholic school and the reference in my bio is really to when I was in um, seventh grade, we walked out onto the playground one day and saw this row of pylons, which came to be called affectionately the Great Wall of Pylons. And we were told that during recess, the girls had to stay on one side and the boys had to stay on the other side because the girls were too much of a temptation for the boys. Mm. And at the same time, a lot of the boys in our school were um, deciding where they were going to go to high school. Now the girls had, if we wanted to stay in Catholic schools, we had one choice, the co-ed school, the boys had the co-ed school or the all boys school and the messages they were getting every day in class. And that they were hearing from their parents was if you're really smart, you want to go to the all boys school because you don't have the distraction of girls in the classroom. I mean, heaven forbid that we would contribute anything to the classroom. And let's talk about who the who was really creating most of the distraction in the classroom yeah. in seventh grade. You go to the all boys. boys school and not ever get any smarter. <laughs> right. So anyway, I just thought this is this is interesting. These messages that not only the girls are getting about our role in the world, but that the boys are getting about our role in the world. And how is that going to impact all of us as we move through life? So that was when I think I first really started challenging the status quo in some ways, challenging those messages and starting to test out some of my influence and persuasion skills around building allies and sort of finding other adults who might want to help change the way some of those conversations were going. Mm. Okay. So a little, that's a, that gives us a glimpse into your soul and how you view the world. And now, now how has that carried over into what you're doing today? How are those precepts the same and how are they different in terms of questioning the status quo and helping organizational leaders do the same? Well, I've certainly I hope I've certainly deepened my um, expertise and my skills <laughs> and all of that since seventh grade, but some of the themes are still the same, right? So not accepting what someone in authority says automatically just because they're a person in authority. Yeah. If it doesn't sit right, you know, sort of asking the question, well, why does it have to be that way? Well, who says it's that way? Right. Mm -hmm. So I think those themes are definitely the same. And since those days and throughout my career, you know, you listed some of the, the industries or the sectors in which I've worked. And I often found myself in internal change agent roles. Either I was hired to lead some change to create a new initiative that was bigger, different than anything the organization had done before. Or I would find myself inside the organization and just look around and go, huh, why are we doing things this way? Or why are we um, talking about things this way? And just sort of challenging that status quo naturally. So after lots of mistakes or sort of learning some lessons, maybe the hard way and coming to some solutions about how to lead that change more effectively, I decided that others might benefit from those lessons and perhaps they could shorten their learning curve if I were willing to share 
a lot of the solutions and maybe the things not to do in those situations. So that's sort of how I got to where we are today. Oh, that's great. And um, you've already got my mind. I've, I've already thought of eight different questions that aren't even on my list and I'll probably forget them before the episode's <laughs> over. But um, so tell me now, how, how would you describe your best work with companies and organizations? What is it you actually do or, or help them with practically? How would you sum up um, the value that you bring to organizations in terms of change leadership? Well, when organizations come to us, they're typically getting ready to, or in the very early stages of what I would call their next big thing, their next big initiative that is intended to expand their impact. And they want to do that as rapidly as possible, right? So we work with socially conscious organizations, social purpose organizations, and they're ready for the next big thing. And that requires change inside their organization. And if they don't know how to make that change stick, how to get things moving and make the change real and sustained, then they're not going to achieve that next big thing, which will rapidly expand their impact, right? So practically what we do are things like strategy transformation and development. So you have this vision, which we also can come in at the very beginning of a journey and help the leader and the team crystallize that vision and make sure the goals are really aligned with the vision, that they're communicated as clearly as possible. Then do they have the right strategy, the how they're going to get there? Then we start with leadership. We bring that intrapreneur support who are those innovative thinkers, those change champions inside the organization? How do we support those unsung heroes who need to do the small strategic sustained work that's really going to make the change stick? We support the C-suite leaders around their own change leadership journey and what it takes to be a credible leader of change. We support change communication. So how do you make sure that you get everyone, including consensus building around stakeholders on the same page and that they understand their role in this next big thing? And then kind of wrapped all around that is taking what is typically a de-energizing thing in most organizations, which is organizational change. And how do we create a change journey that is re-energizing to the organization? so that it brings new partners, donors, stakeholders, volunteers, team members to the table, as opposed to having people get frustrated, um, change fatigue, leave the organization, or just feel like this is a big distraction from what it is we're supposed to be doing every day to serve the people we serve. Mm, okay, lots of stuff there. And so let me let me jump into a couple of places. And, and I, may, I may sound devil's advocate um, in some ways, but so for example, the next big things, when you say that, I think of like the, the next shiny bright object, right? That a lot of, here's what happens in my experience is that employees of organizations roll their eyes every time leadership chases the next big thing. But, But in my experience, the reason for that is because the previous big things didn't stick. 
Absolutely. So, so when they don't stick, you lose trust. And when you lose trust, yes. forget about it because the next big thing is just another eye roll for everybody. I've literally coached, you know, sen senior executives, not CEOs, but senior executives in, in big organizations who say, oh, this, this won't, this, I'm not worried about this. It'll be gone in three months. This isn't going to affect my work at all. If I just ignore it, it'll go away in three months. I know because that's the pattern every time. So um, I'd love to hear a little bit about, well, two things, maybe you made me think of two things when you said the next big thing. One is, is change always about the next big thing? Does it always have to be this big transformational change initiative or can it be iterative or evolving? So that's sort of my first question. My second part then is, I'd love for you to go ahead and, and talk about how to make sure that changes stick so that trust is built and you're not just stuck in this loop of chasing the next big thing. Yeah, so in my experience, particularly when we're talking about the kind of urgent pressing social impact in the world, how do we make our organization more diverse, equitable, inclusive? How do we eliminate single-use plastics across our entire global company? How do we get to net zero carbon emissions? How do we make our um, the economics of our program or service delivery scalable in a way where we can reach more people without having with you know exponentially shrinking the costs as opposed to exponentially expanding the costs, right? So, or how do we make something that is typically only available as a youth leadership training, for example, only available to folks who can afford at a pretty high price point? How do we shift the way we think about delivering that content so that it is more accessible to a wider range of young people around the world? So most of the time when we're talking about that kind of change, we want to start with a transformational idea right? Because we want, we want the thing to happen at a greater scale faster. So it feels like it needs to be transformational. Or are we just really tinkering around the edges while, you know, there's this crisis happening or this huge opportunity before us? And is that really fair for the mission that we serve? Or are so we talking I, the game? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think sometimes people get like tripped up on that. I'm not opposed to an evolutionary or an iterative change. Um, in, in a way, we might put the big transformational thing out there, but the way we're going to get there is, again, the small um, strategic sustained action, which may feel iterative or evolutionary. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's either or. And I don't think that we want to sort of label one as good and one as bad or one as harder and one as easier. You know, I, I think that just is sort of a, not a helpful conversation or road to go down. So here's the challenge. And in full disclosure, I'm going to share a little bit with you from a couple of guests we had on the program a couple of months ago, Michael and Audrey Sahota, who write about um, uh, the, the evolution, basically the, they use the term evolution. And um, Audrey got me thinking about something and I hadn't really thought about this because I love the idea of transformation and big change. Yeah, that, that's me. I love that. Um, but she used the word scary 
she's or or terrifying or something like that. that the mm. word transformation is a scary word for a lot of people because it sounds so oh my gosh like you know the what are, what do you mean we're transforming what what does that mean and when she said it i thought well okay i hadn't thought of that but the other thing i thought of is and maybe this is even worse is that when it's viewed through the lens of transformation or big thing it, it's less believable for a mm. lot of the employees is like, oh, we're not going to stop global warming, right? We're not going to end racism. Are you kidding me? That's way too, like, you know, this company now suddenly is going to. And so it, when, it, when it's viewed as transformational, there's this disbelief, I think. I mean, I, I think I've experienced that just disbelief of, you know, that's all noble. I mean, nonprofits are the worst at it because we put it in our mission and vision statements, you know, world peace, <laughs> like we, this big, huge thing that we're going to do to transform our world and make it utopia. Does that not lead to this kind of, even if it's subconscious, this disbelief among the team? So how do you, and I know we're going to get into this because you're going to talk about influence and persuasion and the types of influence, but um, how do you, how do you help organizations deal with that challenge? Cause leaders are great at, you know, Oh, we can see the vision. We want to do it. We're going to change the world. Now, how do you bring the people along in a way that they're not afraid? They're not terrified. Let's put it that way, paralyzed fear and that they actually, it's believable to them. So there's a lot of layers there and I'm trying to figure out I where I want to start. No, it's a, but it's a great question and it's right at the crux of what we do. So I think I want to start with number one, if you look at a lot of what we talk about and we have these entrepreneurs insight papers that um, we started last year, our very first one was on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the title is beyond proclamations and positions to persistent practice. Good. Right? So yeah. for me, starting change with a grand gesture, some huge announcement of ending climate change or ending global warming or creating world peace, that is kind of easy. It's everything that comes after that to right. make the change real that's hard or that takes a little more effort. Okay. So that's where these intrapreneurs, these leaders who commit, they bring their entrepreneurial spirit, their innovation, their disruptive mindset to change organizations from within. These are the folks who are the unsung heroes of organizational change. That's why we invest so much in helping them succeed because the grand gesture, the big proclamation is just the start. So so yes, I think we need both. I, I have no qualms with a bold statement, with a grand gesture, mm -hmm. as long as you follow it up with the commitment, the resources, the work that it's going to take to make it real. Well said. As, Go ahead. Yeah. So, so then I also think where organizations get tripped up is Let's go back to crystallizing that vision. So, and getting the goals and the strategy. And I, I agree that sometimes transformational can feel very scary. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about why in a second. So we'll, we'll go there last in this, pulling these layers out. 
so many times, and I can't tell you the number of organizations that, that we were, and this wasn't even, they weren't trying to be transformational. They just, this was a corporate foundation. They had their mission statement as to end childhood hunger by 2030, right? So kind of tied to the sustainable development goals. Even their board members did not believe that mission, that they were really going to achieve it. And they were starting to get, you know, cause fatigue inside the organization because for 15 years, probably at that point, 18 years, they'd been saying that. But all, so that's a long-term kind of, right? We know, we know how to end childhood hunger. So in some ways, that's not an impossible thing. I mean, there is plenty of research that shows that is doable if we're willing to invest in the things that we know work. So that's, that as a mission statement, I'm actually fine with. The challenge, on the other hand, was all of the activity these folks were doing, 99.9% of it was designed to feed hungry children today, send them home from school with a backpack full of food on Friday, give them a free lunch at, you know, what, do things in the summer to give, okay, so tomorrow the kid's going to show up and you're going to have to feed him a meal or her a meal again. Right. So it wasn't that the vision or a transformative commitment around that is a bad thing. What eroded the trust is the goals and the strategy were not at all aligned with that. So are we talking about feeding a hungry kid today or preventing a kid from being hungry again tomorrow? And if we're talking about both, then let's make sure we've got strategies and activities that are actually going to get us to both. Right. So again, it's not necessarily that it's the next big thing. It's that we don't follow up with the correct strategy and the balanced activities that we do day after day, week after week, month after month, right. To that are clearly getting us on the path there. Yeah. Um, so I just, uh, last year wrapped up a, a doctoral program and my dissertation was on mission measurement in the nonprofit sector. And so I'm like, now you're talking about mission statements and things that I'm going, uh, don't do it, Patrick, don't do it. Um, but, <laughs> Come but, on, dive in, no, challenge I, me. You're, it's actually, I'm just going to affirm it. Um, what you're saying is one of the things that I found in my research is that it's in the construction of the mission statement itself and the vision statement where organizations get tripped up. What are you holding yourself accountable to as your charge versus your aspiration? So the aspiration might be an end to childhood hunger, might be more of a vision statement where, the, the, where yes. the mission is feet. You know, now, what's our role in that? And if, if our role in that or our charge is feed hungry kids today because somebody has to fill the immediate gap, great. Then now yes. you have, this is our, you know, we're feeding hungry kids today. We're not getting at root causes. We're not claiming to get at root causes, but we know that to end childhood hunger, we know they need to eat today too. Or could you say our vision is the, an end to childhood hunger? Now our mission is, and then it changes from feed kids today through a, a, a food bank or a school feeding program or whatever it is to um, change policy within school Correct. systems and rural communities to such and such. But the mission has to be so clear as to, we know our charge toward a greater vision. And, and the difference I think is, the, the mission is a tad more niche, like this is what we do, whereas Correct. the vision is more of an ecosystem that requires other pieces to fall into place outside our control. 
hundred percent agree with you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. And I think, so that's, you know, that's where we would love to start with organizations if they're not already too far down a road, right? That's our sort mm. of where we would want to come in and make sure, is this really, are you crystal clear? Yes. <laughs> right? I love I love are it. the goals going to get, are the goals actually the things that w- are on the path? And if you learn they're not on the path, how do you reevaluate, right? Yeah. And adjust so you don't get locked into something. Um, so then you talked about transformation being scary, right? As a term or terrifying even. Right. And so, yes, absolutely. Even if you don't use the term transformation, just talking about change. can be terrifying for most humans. So one of the things that I teach a lot are the five psychological triggers that make change hard. Mm. And when you use transformational change, right, that's going to probably put these things on steroids. And so when we understand as leaders that the brains of everyone around us when we're talking about change are reacting in that fight, flight, or freeze mode to any perceived threat to status. So think about organizational change. Well, all of a sudden you're bringing in, um, we're going to automate a whole bunch of stuff on fundraising, for example, in nonprofit. So wait, as the, are you telling me that a computer can do the thing as well? No, right. Threat to status. Because all of a sudden I'm not as important as I thought I was. So even if this might be a really great thing, pulling a bunch of stuff off this person's plate so they can focus where we need a human being like them with their skills to do it. You know, it just sometimes it doesn't automatically read that way. So status, um, certainty, any threat to certainty, which we know in change, I mean, just in the world right now. <laughs> Certainty feels threatened in a lot of ways. So how do we create certainty where we can? How do we um, have empathy for where there's uncertainty and that's causing um, challenges for people? I want to pause and interject real quickly on that one. I really like that one, calling that one out in particular, because one of the things that we found when, when the pandemic like was like first started, but really everything was shut down and organizations didn't know what the heck they were going to do is one of the things that we found is that leaders who were effective at shining any light on the future, even if that light was to say it's not good, like people were less afraid of something that's not good. That's coming because they could prepare for that. If they could see it, then they were, they just had no clue. So to me, the, the, vision casting is not always to some greater result. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the vision casting is, Hey, we're going to have to do this, this, and this, here's what it's going to look like. It ain't going to be fun, yeah. but, yeah. but you put some level of certainty on it or <laughs> uh, some picture to it that people can at least grasp. Do you, is that, was that just my ups? Yes. Kind of what I saw. What, how would you put that in terms of the, the psychological triggers piece? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Even if oftentimes there's more certainty than we believe there is. Good point. Right. So sometimes like right now, early 2022, people are going, oh my God, it's still so uncertain. Is the pandemic getting worse? Is the pandemic? How about let's look for where the certainty is. We're almost certain that there will be more variants. 
So let's just say there's certainty there will continue to be variants. There's certainty that if we get super concrete and committed to a, you know, everyone back to the office date, that's probably going to change. So we can be certain (laughs) that we need to be flexible in, right? So I think rather than just going around saying there's lots of uncertainty, let's look for where we actually do have certainty. Even if it's certainty that things will continue to change, right? Yeah. Or or at least the most certainty we can get. Um, And that moves into risk management. You know, how, what's our appetite for risk? We believe there's a 90% chance, for example, of such and such happening. And so this is going to be our strategic bet moving forward. Um, But yeah, anyway, um, so, so um, the threat to status, the threat to certainty, what's the the autonomy is another one, right? So again, think about organizational change and people feeling like they have no voice, they have no choice Mm -hmm. in the matter. And so how do we as leaders create opportunities for that? We don't have to have all the answers. In fact, it's better when we don't, right? And as leaders, we're often taught that you have to have all the answers and you have to be right all the time. (laughs) Otherwise you're weak, right? And so finding those spaces where I don't have kids, but friends of mine who have kids tell me this is the way you do this. And I, I've seen this work in organizations as well. Not that we want to treat our teams and employees like kids, but a lot of similarities though, (laughs) but that, you know, you give, you give choice where any choice selected is acceptable. So, you know, Patrick, you get, what would you like to wear to school today? You don't leave it totally open in case you want to wear, you know, something that's not appropriate or acceptable, but it's, would you like to wear the blue pants and the orange shirt or the black pants and the purple shirt, you know? So you have two choices, but you don't have endless choices and either choice is acceptable. So how do we create opportunities for choice, create space for co-creation? So we're not saying we're, you know, we're going to go net zero by 2025. How do we get there? right? That's going to have people overwhelmed, but we might say we're going net zero by 2025. Here's, you know, the first, um, our first goal and your team is responsible for this strategy. What do you think is the best way to do A, B, or C, right? So you sort of, we, we leave room for co-creation, but we don't sort of throw it all open and, and require everyone to figure it out on their own. So let me, I'll challenge that one for a little bit. Because that sounds like a disguised command and control, right? Is that, is that extending real autonomy? If you're you're limiting the choices, you're not opening the field to open thought. Do people eventually catch on to that? Does that feel superficial to people? Is it, it, you know, and I'm just, again, playing devil's advocate here. And is that influence or is that manipulation? How do, how do you distinguish the difference between those two? And maybe what you're saying is that there are places for the wide open-ended, but for those that the leadership knows there's this can't just be, you know, a wide open thing, then maybe that's where you, where you tighten it up just a little bit. 
Well, I, again, I don't think this has to be either or the, the primary takeaway is when people feel their autonomy is threatened, Hmm. they're going to react in ways that aren't helpful. So how do we create space for autonomy? Now, in some situations, like we have a tool, for example, called a fix in. So we're moving forward with this change things aren't going as we planned either timing wise or smoothly or whatever. So don't come in and say, okay, we need to either do a or B to fit. That's where get the folks who are trying to do the thing and running up against the challenges, get them in a room. The leader probably shouldn't be there except to say, you know, I want any and all ideas, kick it off. I can't promise we can do everything, but I am, I will promise you I'll, I'll consider it. Right. And then you let the folks who are coming up against the problem, ideate, brainstorm, come up with as many solutions as possible in 20 minutes. Right. And then so you're not promising you can move forward with everything because sometimes you can't. But in other instances, the autonomy you want to give might be, you know, an A or B. So it's not necessarily either or. What I want leaders to hear is a lot of times we think, well, we can't just turn it all over to, right? Well, the point is you need to find some way for autonomy somewhere in the change process. Otherwise you're going to have unhelpful reactions. I completely agree. And, and autonomy, by the way, is one of the three pillars of self-determination and Mm. self-determination theory. And it doesn't mean autonomy in this case, doesn't mean that people do and say whatever they want. They don't answer to anybody. It means I have some, I have some degree of decision-making influence or value. I have some degree of controlling the work that you're asking me to do. Um, And the example we use in employee engagement is like a call center, you know, where you're taking incoming calls. There's not, if you think about a call center, there's not a lot of autonomy. Some, Mm. some companies even have like uniforms that you wear. So, you know, you don't get to choose what you wear. You don't get to choose the size of your cubicle. You don't get to choose the script. You don't get to choose your time in and time out and who, you know, when to escalate something like everything's told to you what to do. And so how do you extend a degree of autonomy to a call center agent. And I think what I I think that's a really good example of where your approach makes a lot of good sense. Give them something where they feel like they've been heard, they have some kind of voice, they have some, you know, sort of um they're they're listened to and uh they have some framing to to put in there. So I I love that. Yeah, I mean because oftentimes we control things that in the big scheme of things don't need to be controlled. Right. And so we we take autonomy and choice away around things where it doesn't really matter. Mm. And it would probably be more effective if we gave it back. Right. So that's, you know, it's just paying attention to that, basically. And you may not be able to do all of it all the time, but know that it matters. I don't remember where I heard this, but somebody told me when when we were new parents, uh, somebody said, as a parent, say yes to everything you can say yes to, Mm. unless there's a really good reason to say no. We're for some reason, we just think as parents that you're, no, you can't have, no, you can't go outside. No, you can't like, why? (laughs) That's why kids ask why, because they're not stupid. They're like, (laughs) okay, why? Um, And, and it was a really good, I wasn't very good at it, at following this advice, but I, I I tried, it made me some, I, I remembered it to this day because I think it applies to the workplace too. And I think it's exactly what mm. you're talking about. We control things we don't have to control. Why, why would we do that? Why not let the autonomy, let people's gifts and talents make room for themselves? And 
we could do a whole nother three episodes. <laughs> right. Just on that. <laughs> I'll let you get to the fourth one. <laughs> so the fourth and fifth, um, you know, depending on the change, sometimes these are less triggered than the others, but relatedness. So our relationships with others. Now that one was triggered pretty significantly in the early days of COVID because all of a sudden we're not seeing our work friends, our colleagues. We're not having that same sort of personal connection and interaction, the serendipitous conversations versus the scheduled things with only the people on my team. Right. So that one was threatened pretty big in, in the early days. And then, and, and still is when, for folks who are, you know, now sick of zoom coffee and zoom happy hours and zoom everything. And the threat Um, that that's going to continue. I mean, the, the conventional wisdom is that we're, this ain't, we're not going back pandemic or no pandemic. And that scares me because I I think that connection piece, that relatedness, Mm -hmm. which by the way, is a second of the three Mm self-determination pillars. So I'm starting to see how these things really align with that. But yeah, we've, we've got to feel connected. And I think there's a, I think there's a lot of people yeah, it's great to work at home. And, you know, that adds autonomy in and of itself, maybe uh, flexibility, certainly, but we're losing connection. And, and there's organizations I'm hearing from people that say, yeah, we're not going organizations that, that uh, let the lease run out on their building. They don't even have office yes. space anymore. Cause they, right. wow, look how money we saved, but right. what are you, what, what are you paying in terms of connectivity and relatedness? And so Anyway. Right. And so what is the impact of any decision, policy decision you're going to make there on that factor? And again, sometimes you need to move forward anyway, but understanding that there is going to be a reaction mm-hmm. and it's a lot of times it's subconscious for people. Um, I think now we're to the point where it is more conscious, just given what we've been through for the last two years, but sometimes this is unconscious. So then know you're going to have to address it at some point, Right. And then the final one is fairness. Mm. So is the change impacting people in what others perceive as a fair way? And we know now with the hybrid work environments and different things, there's a lot of conversation about how, how do we think about and pay attention to and address equity and fairness in that if you're not in front of your boss on a regular basis, um, if even if like the work from home thing, right, that wasn't necessarily um, impacting people fairly in a lot of ways. You didn't have good, quiet space to work from home. And, and so fairness just is that anything that feels like a threat to fairness um, will be, you'll, you'll encounter that reaction as well. So you're absolutely right, Patrick, when you say, or when your former guests were talking about the idea of change, especially big transformational change as being terrifying or scary, any change is going to be a little unsettling. And if it feels like it's a threat to one of those five psychological triggers, well, absolutely, we're going to react even more strongly. Hmm. So the importance of leaders understanding the, you know, this is the, you're in the stuff that people call the soft skills of leadership. And I've always struggled with that term because this is, I don't use it because I don't use the hard part of leadership. I get it. It, They're soft metrics. They're harder, they're harder to measure, but, but I just think the the terminology has a connotation that doesn't make sense to me, but um, here, here's what it leads me to. And then we're going to take a, a, just a real quick break for our sponsor. Everything you've described right now, there's sort of two sides of it. There's the 
mm, there's the behavior and mindset that a lot of people call the culture of change. Okay. Because we have to do, we, we have to create a culture where we're doing things differently, but then there's the business model, understanding the management of the operation part of change. When you talk about going net zero, well, that is going to require a culture mind shift and some new business model things about materials and where we're going to use them and get them and power our, you know, like all these things. There's the both sides of that, that kind of have to come into play. And maybe we can talk about that uh, a little bit more when we come out of this break. Just a, a quick word from our sponsor, Leadership Systems Incorporated. Hey, this is Michael Wallace with Leadership Systems Incorporated. And on behalf of LSI, I want to say thanks for supporting our friend Patrick Jinks and the Leadership Window podcast. We've been partnering with Patrick for many years, and we are so proud to have him represent us as an LSI certified executive coach. As a mutual friend, we'd like to offer you exclusive rates on some of the same training that Patrick has received over the years, as well as some new experiences that we've been developing. Head over to leadershipsystems.com slash jinx to see the upcoming training events on our calendar and register today to keep learning and growing. Again, that's leadershipsystems.com slash jinx, J-I-N-K-S, for exclusive pricing on LSI's virtual and in-person training events. Thanks a lot. Yep. If you want to learn how to coach and add that to your skill set, either as a professional coach or just as a leader manager in your organization, LSI, those are the people that I turn to. That's where I got my certification and so much of my training, and I endorse them wholeheartedly, and they really do have really good value uh, for the investment uh, that you give. So thanks for that. Nancy, um, one of the things that we talked about um, is how organizations can get unstuck. And boy, I think this really relates to so many, uh, I know it relates to a lot of the clients that I work with in the nonprofit sector is, man, we just, you know, we, we see it, we want it, we know there's a better way, but we're just stuck. We're either stuck in old patterns and systems out of compliance or habit or tradition, or we just can't get our board to agree to move quickly enough or our staff. And we just, we just feel stuck. We know we want to change, but we feel stuck. And I know this is not, you know, we're not going, we have like, you know, you have, you have minutes to solve that for us, Nancy. Um, good luck. But no, what are the, what are the sort of core tenants that you think about and help organizations with in terms of that getting unstuck piece? Well, I never shy away from a good challenge, Patrick. So <laughs> let's see what I can do in minutes. I think I can give people a start in minutes with something that we use with every single one of our clients, either in a formal way or informal way. And that is, and this is tied to the trust erosion issue you mentioned earlier in our conversation. And that is the concept of artifacts. Mm. So what do I mean by artifacts? When we move forward with any change, big or small, we leave behind little things that tell us who and what we value, what matters, and how things really get done around here. And often they conflict with the change we want. So when we leave them unaddressed, we either create friction 
it's too hard for me to do the thing you want me to do now because all the systems and processes and protocols and checklists are designed for the old way of doing things. So I really want to do it, but you're making it too hard. So I, I just give up. I get frustrated. Or we erode trust because I don't believe you mean it when you say we're moving forward with this thing, because all the signals I'm getting, some subtle, some not so subtle, tell me, nope, this is how we're really doing things. This is what, this is staying the same. So we need to go on an artifacts dig. So we have a proprietary excavation process that we use with organizations to help them go through and find all those little things they've left behind then we map them. Which things do you have direct control over changing, indirect control or influence over changing? And which do you have no control over? So there might be federal regulations or you know, other things like that that perhaps you can't control, but you gotta at least call them out. <laughs> Otherwise you have that trust problem, right? And then you can get into like a fix-in or some other things. Okay, we can't change that particular artifact, but what can we do to mitigate it? So I can give you some examples of, of what we mean by artifacts and some that are pretty big and some that seem subtle. So we worked with a nonprofit that was struggling to retain women leaders. They would get to a certain level in the organization. And when they were ready to get promoted, they would leave. And they started a mentoring program and they created a gender council to advise the CEO, right? All these things we see organizations do didn't work. We came in with our excavation process and did some observation and some work sessions with teams. And we found a lot of things, but two big ones that stood out for me were regular 7.30 a.m. leaders meetings and shout outs at the start of every staff meeting that sounded something like huge thanks to Patrick and his entire team for working around the clock last week on that big proposal made all the difference. Now, sometimes when I share those things with men, they're like, well, yeah, I mean, they're recognizing people for hard work. What's wrong with that? Well, this, if every shout out, if everything that gets recognized and celebrated is this work around the clock entire team, right? It sends the subtle signal that it's impossible to have family obligations and meet them and work obligations and meet them without going sleepless nights, mm -hmm. right? Or it says what we really value is going like not the person, the team leader who says, the deadline for that proposal is too soon. It's going to require us all to work around the clock and we're not going to do it this time. What can we do so that we have more notice next time? Or what can we do to truncate our proposal development process so we can respond more quickly? And if that's the shout out that happens at the start of every staff meeting, that sends a very different signal, right? So those are artifacts that we've left behind. The best part is fixing those didn't cost a dime or require any special authority but they can have a big impact. Well, the word you used there a minute ago was value. And so that's what you're talking about is the, what are the values of the organization? And this is where, 
you know, the famous Druckerism culture eats strategy for breakfast. So the strategy is let's get a, you know, gender advisory team. Let's do all these, you know, let's do all the things that look right on paper. But if the culture, if the behaviors don't change and the values are really what they are, which leads me to, to something else. You said the change we want. Are we getting the change we want? And I, I, for this made me think of this. Is the change we want in your experience often not really the change we want? It's the change we think we want <laughs> that deep down, we really don't want that. I've, for example, I've worked with boards who love the idea of change. Yeah, we want to do this, that. But when you start changing the things that they're comfortable with, these artifacts, these, they, they turns out they really don't want it. They really don't want the change. They, they want to want it. They, they think it's what they want or that they're supposed to want it. Do you deal with that in with your clients? Oh, absolutely. And I, I've dealt with that as a board chair. <laughs> um, I've dealt with that and we work with a lot of boards and, and I think boards are oftentimes the one of the sticking points. There are a lot of artifacts associated with boards. Mm -hmm. um, we just, our latest Entrepreneurs Insight series paper is all about bridging the board staff divide. And so- one of the things that I do early on in the process is you, you and your listeners have may have seen this um, comic strip. There's a person standing at a podium talking to a room full of people, a town hall meeting or something, and they say, "Who wants change?" Everybody raises their hand. All right. Then the next panel, "Who wants to change?" Nobody raises their hand. Yeah. Then the third panel, who wants to lead change? Everybody runs out of the room. <laughs> yeah. So yes, you're absolutely right. We all want, we all want to be 30 pounds lighter. We all want to look 10 years younger. We all want to eat healthier. We all want to have organizations where everyone feels like they belong and they can show up and be the best version of themselves and contribute their gifts and talents and feel purpose in their work and all. But if that means we need to do things differently ourselves, that that's, oh, wait, what? No, everybody else needs to change, not me. That was one of my biggest lessons as an entrepreneur when I was hired to come in and lead change is it might have been that the CEO or the board chair or whoever who hired me was like, oh, yeah, no, no, I meant everybody else change, not me. Mm -hmm. So we need to have a frank conversation about what does it mean for this bold proclamation, you know, this big announcement, this grand gesture you made, what does it mean for that to be real? And again, are we all willing to do the small sustained strategic actions that will make that change real? Mm -hmm. And so it's often getting that board, you know, having some of those frank conversations about, well, here's what it's going to take. That means we, I led this big governance transformation effort where we were really trying to change the governance model of this international nonprofit when I was board chair. And it was clear that, that there were power shifts that we were proposing that meant we as board members had less power in the whole scenario, you know, long-term. And that was a hard thing for people to wrap their heads around. That's why it's, let's get crystal clear again on what exactly are we talking about? What does that mean for all of us? There are going to be those psychological triggers. There were a lot of threats to status in that conversation, those conversations over years. 
are we all, do we want the change bad enough that we're willing to make the change in ourselves? I love that quote from the little prince. If you want people to build a ship, don't, you know, show them the blueprint, assign tasks, tell them to go collect wood, teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. So if we want the end, if we want to experience the endless immensity of the sea, well, we've got to figure out how to build a ship and we got to do the hard work because you don't get one without the other. Yeah. Uh, all well said. Let me ask you, I've got a few more questions for you and I, I think our time's going to wind down, but um, artifacts. Here's a, here's a question I'd love to pick your brain on for a minute. How do you keep the good ones? Like not, you know, there it, it's maybe there's the thought or the fear that all artifacts are bad necessarily. Maybe tradition is of great value to, to the culture and the relatedness piece of the mission and all of that. How do you help organizations determine which artifacts to keep and which ones they need to let go of? How do you, how do you help them see which ones are advancing them and which ones are holding them back? Well, so that's, you know, through this whole excavation process, the, the point is not to throw out all artifacts. The point is to, from different perspectives in the organization, right? Not just one person's perspective, from different perspectives in the organization, which ones are getting in the way of us realizing the vision we've put out there? And which ones are actually reinforcing? I mean, I'm also very clear on if something is sending really strong signals aligned with the change you want, well, heck, you want to double down on that one all day long, right? It's just when they're sending mixed signals or making something really hard. And so it is, it's having those conversations over and over about, oh, that, that particular artifact actually is very aligned. So let's make sure, how do we not keep it buried, right? How, how do we put that one on the surface and maybe put it in the museum and shine a light on it so that everyone is seeing it on a regular basis? Hmm. It's when we have even small things, like we worked with this nonprofit that had merged two teams, membership team and marketing team, because the merger was supposed to get a lot more value, help the organization accelerate its engagement so that it could meet its mission with this bold goal they had out there. They brought me in to do a retreat and I'm noticing this, you know, well, they do that or they do this. The, or, the team had not been working well. Morale was low. They weren't getting the benefits of the merger that they expected. And about halfway through the morning, I noticed that the old membership team was all sitting on one side of the table and the old marketing team was all sitting on the other. And they were just pointing and us, them, a lot of, and so I said, is this how you sit at all your team meetings, all your staff meetings? And they said, yes. So even something as simple as seating arrangements, that was an artifact, right? That we were still basically two separate teams. So we want to get rid of that. <laughs> But there might be other things that are aligned that reinforce the culture and the behaviors and the characteristics we need for the change. And we want to keep those. That's a great example. I love small, practical examples because that's where it all happens. This stuff happens in tiny moments. It happens in little behaviors. That's where culture is shaped. It's not some big thing that you describe. It's the little things like where we sit. Um, you, I just popped, it just popped into my head a scene from a video that we use a lot in our strategic planning from a a world-class uh, 
elite photographer named DeWitt Jones, who was a, a National Geographic photographer for years. And uh, he has a video on creativity and how to apply it to mm. things like strategy or anything else. And one of the things he talks about is patterns and systems, how important they are. They protect us. They hold us. They make us operate. But if we, uh, his quote is, we, we also know that if we let our patterns and systems go too long unquestioned, they become our prisons. That's mm -hmm. his quote. And I, I love the quote. And the, uh, the photo he uses for this is a photo of a vineyard that he shot, I think somewhere in California or he just uh, the wine country, but it's this shot of this vineyard. And you know what a vineyard looks like? It's just lines of, you know, it's just lines. And I like lines in photography and so does he. And you can tell if you look at his work, but he makes the point that it, this is a nice photo of a vineyard, but if you hold on this long enough, you get, you get bored with it because it's repetition. It's just same old, same old. It just repeats mm. itself. He says, but if we question the pattern, don't destroy it, but question it. So he takes another photo of the exact same vineyard with a red bucket hanging on one of the, the, the wires that goes across mm. just a red bucket in the bottom left-hand corner of the picture of this green vineyard. And visually speaking, it's a, it's a whole different picture. Mm. Same vineyard. He didn't destroy it, replant it, do, undo it, grow in the same stuff. Just added a red bucket to shake it up. And he says, by the time you're, you get tired of looking at the picture, the red bucket shakes it up and makes you look at it all over again. Mm -hmm. And it's such a great visual of what are the, one of the questions I like to ask organizations then, or what are the, what are your potential red buckets where you don't mm -hmm. have to destroy what you're doing, but get people to look at it all over again. Maybe, maybe shake it up a little bit, question it, challenge it. I don't know. Just that, that, that popped into my head. You would love that video, by the way, it's called everyday creativity. Yeah, I'm going to go find it. <laughs> well, it ain't cheap. I can tell you that it's a training. It's one of these training videos that costs hundreds of dollars, but it's worth it. Um, it's a it's a really good video. Let me um, I want to get to the word entrepreneur just a second. Make sure everybody, including me, understand that term. I I have an idea of it just based on its structure. I have an idea of what it is. And I like it because I think it aligns with one of the things that I tell um, that I coach our leaders on, which is be the CEO of your job. So mm. if you're the marketing director, be the C don't be the C chief marketing officer, be the chief executive officer of marketing. Like, mm. yeah. And if you think as a CEO for your role, that uh, that's what makes me think entrepreneur is that um, how do I, how do I take this? If this were my organization, because this is where, this is where my sphere of influence lies, for example, how might I do that? But I got a feeling you have a much better, uh, a clearer, more formal framework for what an entrepreneur is. Talk, talk us through that. So entrepreneurs are those folks who change organizations from within. They bring that entrepreneurial spirit and the kind of disruptive, innovative mindset to the inside of organizations. So entrepreneurs might say, I'm going to go off and create my own new thing as a way to disrupt this industry, or because I like to be my own boss or because, you know, whatever those reasons are. And intrapreneurs want to do that, but they want to do it from within the organization. And the reason I love intrapreneurs who, by the way, can be 
the CEO, the board chair, they can be someone with a formal authority with a title that conveys or communicates formal authority or not. So they don't, an entrepreneur is, is more of a mindset and a practice and less of a specific title or a role. Mm-hmm. The reason I love these entrepreneurs are because, again, they're the ones who the unsung heroes of our organizational change. We need these folks to keep that sustained action day after day that makes the grand gesture real. The reason, the second reason I love these love entrepreneurs is because social entrepreneurs and, you know, these, that's a term over the last couple of decades that's gotten very popular. And I love social entrepreneurism. A lot of those folks though, their impact initially is super small and it may never scale, right? Some of them do, but a lot of them don't just like regular business entrepreneurs. But if we can get intrapreneurs to make their organizations more equitable, more innovative, more diverse, more inclusive, more sustainable, more ethical, they can leverage the reach, the scale, the resources, the expertise of these large organizations to get the social change we want faster. Mm. So it might take a little longer to get the thing going, but once you've got it, you're going to scale really quickly because you've already got this large organization that is already lots of places, right? But the social entrepreneur might be able to get started quickly because it's a small, nimble thing, but they may never scale. So I really believe in the power of entrepreneurs and I want them to have everything they need to succeed because when they do, we all benefit. Oh, I, I agree. I'm, I'm loving every bit of that. And I'm thinking there's a big if thrown in there that entrepreneurs are incredibly powerful and impactful if, and the big if is the top leadership of the organization truly allows that space. And I, what I've found is organizations who have entrepreneurial thinkers who get frustrated and leave because they can't be entrepreneurs because they, they are butt up against a leadership culture that says that that autonomy and that empowerment and that initiative and all that's, you know, it's what we want. And, um, but filled full of command and control leaders who don't know how to let go and don't know how to take risks and don't know how to really free their, they're intrapreneurs. And so I'll, I'll let you challenge that if you want, but to me, that's the big if of intrapreneurism throughout an organization. It is the big if, and that's why I do what I do. That's why yeah. I get out of bed every day because my personal passion is to make that if a when. That's awesome. Yeah. And you know, uh, as you're talking, I was thinking entrepreneurs have they struggle less with change resistance because it's all them. Like it's, it's all them. They go, go do it. Uh, have to, yes and you know. no. Okay. Yes and no. Because the second they get somebody else in, whether it's an investor, whether it's a team member, whether it's a partner, whether it's customer for entrepreneurs where they get the resistance a lot is in, in the industry, right? Because they're oftentimes having to educate the 
folks, the, the marketplace, if you will, even social entrepreneurs, right? If it's, well, we're going to deliver healthcare in a different way. We're going to bring education to rural communities in a different, we're challenging the status quo. You've got to educate the marketplace, whether that's your, you know, the people you need to participate in your program, your donors, your partners, your whatever. So you're going to get resistance there. That's true. Really, that's you, true, Nancy. In fact, you know, weird example that you just made me think of. Facebook advertising. <laughs> this is such a, um, this is a obscure random example, but it popped in my head as you were talking about this. There's a company out there that is selling smart rings now, like rings that go on your finger, smart rings. Like they take your pulse and your, they do the mm. whole count the number of steps and all that. And the, uh, the ad says something like ditch your smart watch get a smart ring instead. Right. <laughs> and you read the comments. I love reading the comments of some of these because people are just, they're ruthless. They're so brutal. And almost all of the comments were, uh, no, thank you. Like this can't do near what my smartwatch can do. You must be kidding me. And I'm, I mean, almost every single thousands, hundreds of thousands of comments on these Facebook ads that spend lots of money getting this, you know, and the headline was ditch your smartwatch because this is the late, this ring is the latest in technology. And the resistance from these entrepreneurs was not from their employees. It was from the market saying, uh-uh, right. this doesn't even come close to letting me ditch my smartwatch. Like, can it tell time, <laughs> you know? Uh, so that, that's a really good point is they do face resistance. It's just a, but maybe a different kind. So, you know, what's brilliant about that, which is a quick, you know, tip for any of the entrepreneurs here is, um, well, two things. Number one, they're not in the, in that ad with that sort of in your face, ditch your smartwatch, right? Mm -hmm. Not add something else to add okay. another accessory, right? <clears throat> they're speaking to, they're speaking to a narrow slice of the marketplace. So that ad is intended for if you know the you know curve of the uh, diffusion of innovation theory, mm -hmm. they're speaking to the folks who are the innovators and the early adopters because mm -hmm. they want to be the ones. If it's ditch your smartphone for the latest technology, what they're what's triggering the folks is oh awesome, I want the latest thing, mm -hmm. right? So they're speaking to a very narrow slice of the marketplace, which in organizational change. Sometimes all you need is a 2% of those folks who are more open to change to get aligned with you. So when we try to speak to everyone, we're going to end up connecting with no one. The second thing I love about that example is awesome. They got tons of resistance from the people who aren't the target market right now. But guess what we learn in reading all those comments? What are the specific objections? Thank you. That's a gift. I now know how I need to tweak my messaging or adapt the product or the service going forward so that it will resonate with you when I want to get you on board. So please give me the resistance. I want to know the objections. I want to know the exact language that you're using so that I can use it. That, I mean, this is not, I know probably people are going, that's manipulative. It, it's not. If I truly want to get you Brilliant. on board, I need to understand what's going on in your head so that I can communicate with you in a way that you'll hear it. 
that is perspective taking. That's using empathy, the Swiss army knife of change leadership, I often call it. Uh, so I love that example. Thank well, you for sharing that. I might use that going forward. <laughs> you love it for a different reason than I shared it, which kind of goes back to you now are, are living and demonstrating who we talked about you were at the beginning of this program, uh, being able to reframe it. And I love the reframing. Resistance becomes intel at that point. Now, we don't know if that was their, you know, if they were brilliant enough to do that or if they just got it wrong. We don't know. <laughs> um, but if, but whichever the case, yeah, if they use it as Intel and kind of shift and tweak and figure out who their, who their audience is, but then that's also, um, let's say they do get some early adopters and innovators, then it's, we're back to how does it, and now how do we make it stick and how do we make it scale now? How do we get all those others that, you know, rely right. on their smart watch to also want the rings? I love that. Um, Boy, Nancy, this is really good. Um, let me let me wind down with my last two questions here. We could go in so many different directions, but um, a couple of questions I like to ask all my guests. And one is, I love the stories I get when I ask, who who would be a leader or two that come to mind for you that have helped shape who you are today as a leader? You know, mm. we get a little bit of glimpse into kind of how you approach things and. And um, you certainly have a gift for what you're doing and, and you are a, a successful entrepreneur yourself. Who, who are one or two of the key leaders in your life or career that have had the greatest impact on who you are as a leader today and why? Well, I think maybe less first, maybe less a specific person and more, uh, you know, I mentioned my 16 years of Catholic school mm -hmm. And you referenced many times in this conversation, the command and control style of leadership. So I think I experienced more frequently than not that as what equals leadership. And it, it never quite sat right with me. <clears throat> so I think there was, and, and I was one of two girls in my high school military history class. So I was kind of drawn to that in some ways, but again, the sort of military command and control style, which may have served us as a world well up to a certain point, but I don't think serves us well going forward. So that influenced what I thought of when I thought of leadership and who I thought a leader had to be. And it wasn't until my first job out of college really where um, I had an amazing boss. So I was brought on, talk about entrepreneur, to lead our county's first countywide youth volunteerism effort inside the volunteer center. And I loved working for Kitty because number one, I think she demonstrated that co-creation you know, there were certain things she needed to be deciding and be in charge of, but she offered a lot of space for co-creation. She treated me as a leader of this initiative, even though I was 21, 22 years old. Um, so I really appreciated that she sort of let me make mistakes, but I knew just like others on the team knew she always had our backs. And we were part of the United Way system. And, you know, there were some changes happening there. And, you know, we always knew she was going to stand up for us, but she created space for us to have sort of those learning size mistakes. So that for me was kind of a real eye opener of a different kind of leader. And then I went to grad school and this whole servant leadership 
movement was really front and center for me in a lot of my grad school work. Um, Hubert Humphrey, I went to the Humphrey School in Minnesota. So learning a lot about his particular approach was amazing. And then, you know, about eight or nine years ago, I really came into the mindful leadership movement. And so, again, I think it's maybe less about specific people and more about the concepts and different styles of leadership that has really evolved for me over decades. And I'm a perpetual student. I love learning new things. So to me, it's always like, where can I learn? How can I continue to grow and evolve my own leadership style and the the way that I teach and support other leaders? I, um, I love those stories and particularly the first one, because so much of what we learn about leadership or what makes us leaders today, not necessarily things that we wanted to emulate, but things we did not want to emulate. Um, and those can be very powerful as well. And I will, I'll give a, a just a quick glimpse. I hope this is okay. I'll edit it out if it's not, uh, but um, I sent you an email in the last day or two and I got an auto responder and the auto um, response message was, I'm out sharpening my skills. I'm going to my, I'm going to a change leadership thing, or there was a, it was some um, yes. additional yeah. training that you're getting for yourself so that you can bring better value to your client. So I just want to add that and let our listeners know she means that when she says she's alert and continuing to learn, you don't just start a business and say, okay, I've learned it all. Um, you continue growing and sharpening. And I really appreciate it. That was one of the coolest auto uh, response uh, emails. And then five minutes later, I think I got, the actual response from you, which was, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, last question, Nancy, uh, what, what is the, what is the Nancy Murphy, uh, you know, 20 second soundbite on the most important thing for all leaders to keep in mind as they lead, what's like your number one piece of advice for leaders? The number one piece of advice is absolutely tied to what I said, my, perception of who a leader is, was from based on my childhood experience. Mm. And that is to be the best version of yourself as a leader. So I have a mantra, which is naturally Nancy. If whatever I'm expected to do or some new thing I want to try, if I can't figure out a way to do it as naturally me, I'm not going to do it. So oftentimes we get you know, we read a book or we listen to a podcast on leadership or someone tells us what it means to be a leader, what a leader looks like. That's the big one for me. What does a leader look like, right? Mm-hmm. Our subconscious creates these images. And when we try to be that and it's not authentically us, I think it doesn't work. So sort of find your own style and then be the best version of it. Mm. Not that like, well, I'm really tough and I, so I'm just going to be myself. Well, okay. Be the best version of that sort of hard driver, high D on the disc assessment um, leader. So that's my, that's my number one advice. Find your own authentic style and live it every day. I love it, Nancy. And I think we have to, we have to be intentional about that. We have to remind ourselves of that. I ask um, groups sometimes when they conduct an event or a meeting, that one of the best debrief questions I think they can ask is, could we have done that better? Mm, And, and I ask myself that I ask myself that at the end of podcast episodes, I ask myself that at the end of executive coaching calls and board retreats, could I have done that better? And if so, how, and then try to apply that for the next time. 
Nancy, thank you. This is so rich. I appreciate it. Um, Folks, if you want to learn more about um, what Nancy does and how she might be able to help you, if you're looking at uh, helping you get to those artifacts and get unstuck in change and lead this difficult social impact work that you're doing, the best thing you can do is check out csrcommunications.com. csrcommunications.com. By the way, while you're there, Take the free influence style test. It's really quick, really simple. And uh, Nancy will send you a quick report on your leadership style. Are you the intimidator or are you the storyteller? By the way, I was the storyteller, Nancy. Um, and I so, believe it. <laughs> so I got to look at that and say, okay, is that, you know, where does that work well? And where might that yeah. be, you know, holding me back in my work? But uh, do that. Take that uh, quick influence style. A lot of people love these assessments. And this is this is great. You get a quick report immediately get connected with Nancy and all her other stuff. Wonderful blog, great resources on her website. Nancy, thanks again. And uh, let's stay in touch. And folks, lead on.